clients, colleagues, and friends of the firm. Welcome and thank you for joining us for today's uniquely Rockefeller special client event. Today's event is the 41st in our series and will be a conversation between Rockefeller Capital Management President and CEO Greg Fleming and Chairman Emeritus and Senior Advisor to Vanguard, Jack Brennan. With that, it's my pleasure as always to introduce Rockefeller Capital Management President and CEO, Greg Fleming. Thank you, Tom. And good morning to clients of Rockefeller Capital Management, to our colleagues and to other friends of Rockefeller. And welcome, as Tom said, to the 41st in our series of special client interviews, which we commenced way back in March of 2020. It's my great pleasure today to have an individual who's closely affiliated with Rockefeller Capital Management, Jack Brennan, who actually was on the third client interview that we did in this series way back in uh, April of 2020. And he's now back uh, for the uh, 41st uh, episode of our Rockefeller client series. Jack Brennan, uh, John J. Brennan, is Chairman Emeritus and Senior Advisor of Vanguard. He joined Vanguard in July 1982. He was elected president in 1989, one of the youngest presidents in the history of the financial or really any business world. Served as chief executive from 1996 to 2008 and served as chairman of the board from 1998 to 2009. Vanguard's assets under management when Jack started were approximately $5 billion. They are seven and a half trillion approximately today. But that's just a statistical benchmark of success. Jack was instrumental in creating the culture, the firm, the ethos that led to the incredible impact of Vanguard on the asset management industry. He's also a director of Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, American Express, and we're proud to say Rockefeller Capital Management. He's chairman of the Board of Trustees of the University of Notre Dame, a founding trustee of King Abdullah University of Science and Technology, chairman of Vanguard Charitable, not surprising given Jack's constant focus on giving back, founding chairman of Catholic Investment Services, co-chair of Ready Nation CEO Task Force on Early Childhood, which again, I can tell you is not just something on his bio, he's dug in on that. He's past chairman of the Financial Industry Regu Regulatory Authority, FINRA. I served on the board uh, while he was chairman the Financial Accounting Foundation, and the Investment Company Institute. He's a proud graduate of Dartmouth and Harvard Business School. He's received honorary degrees from Mount Alashis College, Curry College, Drexel University. He's also a uh, husband and father, uh, and, and candidly, and this is why we're lucky to have him uh, uh, with Rockefeller Capital Management and here today. He's one of the true leaders of our time. An anecdote before I uh, turn it to Jack and get him involved here. Uh, when I was at Merrill Lynch in the mid to late 90s, uh, I started something called an Asset Management CEO Roundtable. And I would get the uh, CEOs of the leading asset management companies, which was an incredible growth uh, industry at that time, uh, to come to an event uh, for a day, day and a half. And when Dave Kamansky was the CEO of Merrill Lynch, he would come. And then at some point, uh, Stan O'Neill uh, would help me host it. Uh, and in order to get the other asset management CEOs to the event, Larry Fink, 
our own Jeff Shames, uh, uh, Jim Reapy from T. Rowe Price, all sorts of people across the industry. The key was Jack Brennan because he was the one who was setting the market vanguard. And once I had Jack Brennan locked down, uh, you know, I would say to people, well, Jack Brennan's coming uh, and, and uh, the attendance would, would, would follow. My dialogue with Jack was about substance at the meeting. Jack would say, listen, I'm happy to come and, and see my peers and even play a round of golf, but we're gonna talk about things that matter too, aren't we, Greg? And then I had him. So that's the man, Jack, great to have you here today. Thanks for coming back on our program. It's great to be here. And uh, that story brings back a lot of memories, uh, Greg, of, uh, uh, you know, this industry, which is a great industry. We compete like crazy, but, you know, in the end, when it's about how do you help the economy or help uh, investors broadly, we can also uh, work together. And we've been fortunate, right, to compete with people we actually like at the same time. And sometimes you go full circle and here we are working together. Exactly. Uh, so, Jack, let's um, let's get into uh, the incredible career you've had. Uh, the um, uh, can we start with um, what drew you into this business and how you ended up in Vanguard? And I actually picked that as the first question because your skill set would lead you to success anywhere, as it has in a lot of other things that you are interested in and your family's interested in. So, what was it about the investing business in Vanguard? that attracted the young Jack Brennan out of Harvard Business School? Well, I actually had a stop after Harvard for two years with a fantastic private company called SC Johnson Wax. I was actually headed to New York to be in the investment business, and I got an opportunity to go out and work sort of as a floater for the CFO and the CEO uh, at this wonderful company. And it, it was a fantastic two-year experience, and I have to say, I learned so much. I always called it Harvard Business School 2.0 for me. World-class people, world-class company with unbelievable values. It's private, always has been, always uh, hopes to be. So that was a very valuable stop along the way, Greg. Um, and, you know, the two-year itch, it happens, right, with people after they get out of law school like you or business school. And, um, and the investment business had a lot of appeal. It was not an appealing business at the time. Um, you know, this is my fun fact I always give to people. When I started at Vanguard, the yield on the S&P was higher than the PE on the S&P. That's incredible. Okay, so it was not a place that people were, were rushing into. Uh, for it, it By happenstance almost, Vanguard reached out to me. And, you know, it, it was such a differentiated place when I got to know it over a couple of visits that the place seemed interesting. It, it, we can talk about it was not much of a competitor at those in those days. But the business itself, and you know this, um, the investment business is so appealing if you're intellectually curious, if you like competition, if you like the fact that you're gonna have demanding clients that uh, you're gonna engage with on a regular basis. To be honest, I, I don't think there is as interesting a business as the investment business, and that's what drew me to first talk to Vanguard and uh, it, it never looked back 40 years later to be 40 years, a couple of weeks that I started uh, at Vanguard. And uh, I thank my lucky stars every day that I got to the best firm in a fantastic business. There's never been a dull day, right? Some days they're good dull, some days they're bad, <laughs> I mean, good, good, exciting, some days they're bad, exciting. But you know, you pick up the you pick up the New York Times in the morning. Something on that front page affects what we do, 
And that's why. And it's, you know, it's why I, when I talk to young people about the business. Um, and then in the end, and I, the ultimate to me is you're actually you're doing good things for people in this business, right? You're creating better financial futures if you do your job well. And so you get all of that plus some satisfaction. You 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 see it with your clients. You know, I get stopped continually where somebody says, I just want to say thank you to you and your colleagues at Vanguard. You know, I have a great retirement or my kids went to college on a 529 plan or whatever. That that makes it all worthwhile at the end of the day. That's really so well said. I, I, I remember during the credit crisis, I used to be defensive of the wealth management business, the asset management business, because the, the financial industry was was under such pressure. And I would say, wait a minute, th these are good businesses and they do uh, important things for Americans across the country. Uh, you know, whether you're you're managing money for an institution that takes care of teachers in retirement or, you know, all the work we do at Rockefeller uh, Capital Management across our wealth management business, taking care of families, generational planning and uh, you know, paying for college. And th these are businesses that one can be proud to be part of. Uh, and, and I know you feel that strongly and I do as well. And, and, and you always have to come back to the human element in that, right? It may be CalSTRS, but it's the teachers who are the beneficiaries in retirement of what CalSTRS does. And I know I found that to be a great personal mantra. And in at Vanguard, you always come back somebody I think some people think I'm a little edgy. Somebody say, I'm just a small investor at Vanguard. And I'll say, there is no such thing. And I'm not being flip about it. I'm not yeah. being flip about it. And I say, my first account at Vanguard was open on a Fidelity cash reserves check for a thousand bucks. And it was, it was, it was our entire, it wasn't our net worth because we had a lot of school debts. So we had a negative net worth, but it was our entire liquid assets was a thousand dollars at Fidelity. And I moved it to Vanguard. So there is no such thing in my mind. And that, and so when you see generational stuff like you do at Rockefeller so well, always coming back to that individual who's the ultimate beneficiary. It's not an institution. It's not the endowment at Yale. It's the students who benefit and the researchers who benefit from the endowment at Yale. And I think that's it's not unique to this industry, but it's a really powerful motivational force. 100%. So now you, you did say, and, and I know how proud you are of what Vanguard has become, and, and as I started up front, how instrumental you, you have been in that. Um, but there were the early years. I mean, it was, you know, Vanguard was not a celebrated name in 1982. Uh, so what was it like when you first got there? I mean, uh, and it's also not in a major urban area. Uh, so, you know, it's not New York, it's not Boston, it's not. Uh, so tell us a little bit about Vanguard in the early years when you got there. So Vanguard started in 1975 with 13 employees. Uh, it was a couple of hundred when I got here in, in 1982. Um, candidly, the man who had really run the place every day had left the company. So I'd say we were a little undermanaged, if to be kind. Um, we had an inspirational visionary leader, Jack Bogle, who had, who had founded it, which is who I came to work with and for, um, and that was the appeal. And so it was a scrappy place. It was a scrappy place. I mean, we were hustling like crazy. We had outsourced IT. We had they had smartly insourced customer service, which mattered a lot as a competitive differentiator. But to a great extent, we were money market funds and a fund called Windsor Fund with a man named John Neff who ran it, and he was the he was the most highly respected uh, mutual fund manager, and probably he and John Templeton in in the country. 
And that's kind of what it was. And it was 800 numbers and coupons in the newspaper and those kinds of things. Uh, but a tremendous group of young people who would go on to from being a phone associate to leading this rapidly growing enterprise. So there was a ton of spirit. Um, and and it was, you know, you were the underdog. It was, and, and I'll just tell you one anecdote, which is I did, you know, I grew up in Boston, know a lot of my father knew a bunch of people in the industry. To a person, they said, don't go to work for Jack Bolt. He was too tough to work for, blah, blah, blah. And my father gives me that readout and he goes, you're going to take the job, right? And I said, absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, we were great partners for 13 or 14 years. And uh, so, you know, between a vision and then a bunch of scrappy people who really wanted to win, uh, it was a fight. It was a great place to be. It was uh, it was a lot different than Johnson Wax, let me put it that way. But we were I was able because I get probably more, not probably, I got more responsibility than I deserved. I could bring some of the learnings from a great company like SC Johnson Wax to try to help us grow into something that might be meaningful down the road. And Jack was, he's like, bring it on, you know, whatever you, whatever you know, whatever you've learned. And there are a lot of secrets in there that helped us get from, you know, a, a bit player to modestly successful. Yeah, modestly. Yeah. Uh, any one or two inflection points along the way that uh, that stand out in your mind that, uh, you know, when you when you uh, and I don't know how many employees there were and there are today, but, you know, everything is, uh, you know, the, you know, this is 10, 50, 100 times bigger on every metric. So what were some of the inflection points that that uh, that created that journey? Well, one of the key ones was, in a sense, to say we're going to make a product and find people to buy it. Right. So we make people want us to do this or that, separate accounts, all this stuff. We said, you know what, co in our structure, we can deliver commingled investment vehicles, mutual funds generally. And they can be bought by somebody with a thousand dollar IRA or somebody with a hundred million dollar pension account. Critical decision. And so you had to move from the 800 number world to selling to institutions and selling and attaching other services. But that a product and find markets was a big decision because lots of people go the other way. They have they create a whole bunch of different vehicles and they don't stand for anything. We stood for the we hope the world's best mutual fund. So that that was a critical decision. Um, you know, internally, one of the great decisions, Greg, was um, this this was something I learned at Johnson Wax. We made everybody everybody there you start a partner in the company, and not literally, but we created what we called the partnership plan. And it was amazing to see the reaction of people. Turnover rates went down, uh, our performance improved, and having 100% of the people have a little stake in how we do for our clients was an unbelievably powerful force. Um, I'd say two other big ones, there's a lot of them, but um, betting very big on technology when we could afford to do it finally, seven or eight years into the time I was here was huge because it, it brings scale, it brings a whole bunch of things for us. And then we were very early in betting a ranch on the internet in the day. So we could have reach quality, offload a lot of the work to the clients along the way. Um, the last one I'd say, um, fast forward into the beginning of this century, and we were we were behind in ETFs, we were behind in serving financial advisors, and, and we just said we're going for it in a major way. And now, it, you know, the outcomes of that, it's wonderful for us that Rockefeller advisors can sell Vanguard products. Yeah. Not the case 25 years ago. They could, but they wouldn't. And that was a big decision. So those are four or five, some operational. I'll tell you though, but one of the most important was 
create aligning rewards with mission in this in this compensation scheme we put together for people you know and this is not being a partner at Goldman Sachs by any means but uh, it was uh, really a great lesson and I've told I've I've gone around and preached it to client companies who want to know how do you make that happen well you know and it's so many things in, <clears throat> in that list I mean Rockefeller uh, technology is so key in 2022 and that's front and center on everything that uh, that we're focused on here, as well as aligning incentives, and as well as creating that culture and that ethos. Um, it's been one of the fun things to watch, right, over the last four years, or is it 40? When did you say? I forget when when this all started. With some you. days it feels like four, and some days it feels like 40. But um, from day one, right, what are we trying to accomplish? How are we going to accomplish it? How are we going to use technology to, to make sure our advisors are as good as they can be and our clients have all the information they want um you know it, it's a it's a very similar as you know we, you and i've talked about it it's there are a lot of lessons shared lessons in our early days and and rockefeller's early days today you got you guys actually have some money we didn't <laughs> well uh, uh we're going to come back to that but i want to get to the investing side because so many of the people listening want to hear from you on this so uh you've got lessons embedded in both of your books you wrote the second one nearly 20 years later what caused you to take the second one, you know, the pen in hand and do it again uh, and come back to it? So I wrote the first one at the inflection point of the bubble, of the NASDAQ bubble. And the noise out there, the disadvantageous noise, the money losing noise that people are are subjected to was so high that uh, I sat down and wrote it and just said, you know, here's what matters. During the pandemic, you get gamification, you get meme stocks, you get Bitcoin, you get all this stuff that um, it just felt like 99 revisited. And the fun part was to sit down and say, okay, so I'm good. So I reread the first book, which I hadn't done in a long time, and said, uh, what here endured? And then what needs to be updated? And what what's different than it was 20 years ago? This is a really fun exercise. You know, the core of the, of the principles unchanged. The data that backs up the principles over the subsequent 20 years, completely verifying of cost matters, discipline matters, the simple stuff that people that gets lost in the headlines and the TV shows. Um, but then, you know, uh, some really great stuff has happened as well over that 20 years. You know, the couple of things I'd mentioned, um, you know, the advice options that are available today, you know, Rockefeller Capital didn't exist a singularly focused enterprise that only wants to provide advice to clients. Didn't exist 20 years ago, right? So implicitly, there's parts of what I talk about in the book. That's what I've learned in watching you guys evolve into this deeply specialized firm and what you do. And it goes to the other end of the spectrum where for 25 basis points, you can get a robot. Couldn't get that either. It's still better than a, a sheet that says, you know, are you an eight or a 10 on the risk spectrum, which is what it was 20 years ago when you think about it. So advice really important. You know, I think one of the great tools that's arrived over this period of time, not just for the tool itself, but how it can be used. ETFs were a fringe element of the business. It's a multi-trillion dollar business today. And I think it's a really important tool for people to use uh, when investing. Um, and then looking forward, you can see some things are gonna come in much broader, uh, a much broader spectrum, like access to privates, access to other alternatives that are really important. My own view is, and one of the messages in the book about that is, it's a great thing 
but make sure you get a trusted partner and advisor before you do it. You, you guys obviously do that. You have a wonderful platform, but th it's going to be a great thing for investors. So the noise, to, and I had a little time, right? You, 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 uh, is a, I've been traveling a lot. And I said to my wife the other day, I missed the pandemic because of the, the overhead, right, of, of travel. But I had a little time and it was fun. To, you know, you look, and you go back and you, you say gamification. That's, that's, we're not going to talk about that anymore. You know, the idea you're going to get rich trading crypto probably has been dissuaded. Uh, people have been dissuaded. You know, trading your way to wealth in a pretty short period of time. I think people have learned a lot of those lessons. So it's, it's important. Anyways, it's, it's a fun exercise to do because uh, you, I'm one of those people who actually likes getting older. You don't get smarter, but you get more experienced than somewhere in there. There's some wisdom. Well, you know, one of the things that you said that I want you to expound on for the listeners is, uh, is the smart money smart? Uh, volatile market now, what do you mean by that? So, you know, if you look at the data and say who, who has um, consistently delivered outstanding results for their clients, if you will, the best endowment managers, university endowment managers are a cohort of people who have done that well. And um, so I think the answer to the question is yes, but it's yes, but like anybody, they can make mistakes. Um, but the yeses in there, I think are really, there are a lot of lessons for any of us as individuals or families or financial advisors. Um, and to me, the lessons that you, you learn from looking at the Yale Endowment or the MIT Endowment or the Notre Dame Endowment who are sort of consistently at the top are a few. One is they think long-term. And when you sit on an investment committee at a place like this, you realize, you know, how the, how the uh, S&P futures are opening this morning has absolutely zero relevance to their life, right? So they tune out the noise, which is important, and they really do think. They're very diversified, right, which is uh, important. And if you just look at a pie chart, they look over-diversified. But they, the, the key to the way they diversify is uh, they find ways to uncorrelated assets that they hope each can generate alpha. Good lesson for all of us again. And then I think maybe the most important point for why they're smart, at least in my view, is, you know, they don't call their managers, investment managers, managers, they call them partners. And they find people and firms they can trust. And it's a critical part. Again, it's what you guys are doing at, at Rockefeller is to be that trusted advisor. So, you know, by the time you get thinking long-term, diversified, but not, not, not diversified in the sense of buying, paying 100 basis points for a closet index fund, diversified into a bunch of subcategories. Um, and then this idea that they have, uh, they want permanent long-term partners. That's why if you study the data, they win better than pension funds, certainly far better than most individual investors. Uh, and it's not an easy game, but that's to me, um, and it's actually an important, I, I think it's one of the most important chapters in the book because again, you'll remember, they got over their skis, a lot of them in, uh, in uh, 2008, didn't realize how much they owed for capital calls and other things. So they're not flawless by any means. And sometimes they drift, but when you look at David Swenson or, uh, the the people, the guys at Notre Dame, the guys at MIT, boy, they they just don't stray from what they do, and it's really it's really critical. 
Jack, I was going to do. I was going to come back to this, but uh, as we're in the flow, third book. Uh, you know, in another 10, 10 or twenty years, I mean, the industry is continuing to evolve uh, pretty quickly here. What what changes do you think we're going to see uh, in the industry and in the way that uh, the industry serves investors? So I think the core won't change, right? I, you know, people can say you're you know you're you're reading yesterday's newspaper, but if you go back, you the fundamentals of markets don't change, right? They may get this, they may get disrupted, but eventually equities should do the best because you're buying a call on growth, right? And and if you believe the economy is going to grow. So should equity still be a core of your portfolio? Yes. Um, does diversification work? Yes, but don't be over diversified. You get down the list of things. But you know, when I, when I think about it, uh, I look out and think investment product cost is going to continue to come down. You know, I think something like private equities, they're going to be retail share. I think those those prices have come down. I think cost I don't think the cost of advice necessarily will come down much more, come down some in certain segments. Uh, but I think investment product cost, um, I think you're going to continue to see indexed investing take the core of the beta responsibilities in a portfolio. And that's going to create a very differentiated look to active equity management and maybe even active bonds, which is going to be higher risk, higher reward, highly concentrated. And you'll mix the two, and that'll be a core part of, of how people think about advice. I think that'll be a, a norm back then uh, in, in the future. You know, what I hope, Greg, and we were talking about this yesterday, I hope one of the things the book would be able to build upon is the great education around investing in personal finance that Americans get in their education system, which they don't get today. I have to say, you know, the sort of basic building blocks. I would love for, you know, straight talk three, not to have to even talk about it because it's like gym class. Everybody knows how to build, uh, you know, bounce a basketball. And uh, that that's the other one. But, it, but for me, the, the most important message is I, I literally don't think, I, I think the core tenets of how we should all invest successfully were true in 1920. True in 2020, and they'll be true in 2040 and 2120. Um, and it's how you make it happen. But um, uh, that's the fun part about the business. Although, you know, one of the things, there really aren't that many innovations when you think about it, particularly for retail investors over time. Mostly it's packaging. And I, you know, so I don't know what the next big innovation I think of ETFs as the last big innovation in sense and uh, online advice and stuff, probably part of it. But um, that's the fun part, right? So the question is, how do you win in that game as an investor or as a firm? Yeah, uh, Jack, some of the things that have been going on and you you referenced it and I, I, I pretty much know where you are on these things, but uh, listeners want to hear. Um, the um, uh, Let's start with ESG, the role of ESG going forward in the investing world. It's, it's become, uh, uh, you know, it's getting a lot of attention, both from a regulatory standpoint, are, are you doing it are you doing what you say you're doing? Is it more of a, a fad? You know, I've argued that, um, you know, I'm raising millennials and Generation Z and, and a lot of the things that are embedded in ESG investing are things that they're, they worry about now and will in 20, 30, 40, 50 years. So how is how is it, how will ESG unfold here in your eyes going forward? You know, in some ways, the I, I, I agree with you. I think ESG is real, you know, We've been through SRI and a bunch of other things over the years. I think I think ESG is real. I think the E, 
was it critical was the thing that made it real not just a fad and then we've had a whole lot of social unrest and other things that have added to it but so i i think it's very real and what i think will happen greg is it's going to become the norm and you know all, all the commentary about are you describing it correctly and all those things i think it'll be interesting to see in 20 years if it's even a topic it because it's become so embedded you know it's like good governance if you will post Sarbanes-Oxley. You think about how companies changed the way they govern themselves post Sarbanes-Oxley. I think market pressure will continue to, uh, it'll just marginalize non-qualifying companies under ESG standards, if you will. Yeah. And it'll just be what we expect, just like we expect great governance from companies today. And generally we, we get it as investors. Um, and I hope that's the case, to be honest. I think it would be a great thing if 20 years from now, you know, it just was, if you're not there, you're not, you don't, you're out of, you're out of business if you're not uh, very uh, attuned to environmental issues, social issues, and so on. But I think that over the next 20 years, it's going to be rapidly, rapidly growing uh, part of the business. And not just because of, I think it's been highlighted. I think the younger people have driven it. Actually, Europeans have helped us. They're ahead of us on this, right? And yeah. And then it's so it's an awareness creator for others uh, that I think is a very positive a positive force. Yeah, you know that um, uh, the Rockefeller family were one of the pioneers in the space, coining the phrase impact investing in the Rockefeller Foundation way, way back in 2007, which is a long, a long ways back in this uh, space. Uh, we've we've got a lot of expertise in Rockefeller Asset Management. We opened the office in London to serve those European investors because it's so core to investing in Europe. So, you know, we believe as a firm that th this has real traction. Uh, you've got experience that most firms don't have. That, that's what struck me uh, when I first got to know the firm. You've been doing this in live for 25 years in terms of products available to the, to the marketplace. And, you know, that's one of the challenges right now, right, is everybody wants to be the standard setter. Uh, there's a lot of, there's a little bit of a, a feeding frenzy and then everybody wants to say they're an ESG investor but uh, particularly with the heritage of the family you have you know deep roots in this and experience you know good and bad right we all we all have good and bad investing experience and uh, that's you know I, I happen to think it's a, a a huge opportunity for you guys as you continue to develop as a firm yeah Jack let's go to another one that uh, you referenced earlier uh, and um, uh, you know, also gets a ton of attention, which is uh, uh, crypto. We'll put blockchain aside, which I think is a completely different topic. Um, but crypto um, and, uh, you know, Bitcoin and, and the whole space. I mean, obviously, uh, major volatility here as the market has shifted uh, with the Fed and inflation. Um, how, how do you see that in the near term and, and over time? So I'm glad you called out the technology. The technology, you know, hasn't Technology blockchain hasn't uh, had the adoption rate that one would have thought five or seven years ago, but it's going to be important in, in, in some ways. Uh, my challenge with trading crypto, if you will, is um, I, I, like, I actually like listening to Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett about it because I haven't agree with them, but I, I won't be as pithy as they are. But the uh, you, know, you come back and you say, what's the intrinsic value? And is it just a higher is it just a higher price and so i'm i'm a big 
believer in intrinsic value. Um, it, whether it's a bond where you're going to get your thousand bucks and you're going to get paid interest, a private equity investment, an equity investment, a piece of real estate, all of those have uh, inherent intrinsic value. I may be too uh, naive or dumb to understand it. I don't see the inherent value in in these uh, cryptocurrencies. Um, you know, you go back and look at gold over time, you know, and it, some some people think of it as, a, as an alternative to gold. Um, I, I just don't see it. And when I look at long-term returns on gold, not, not very good. Uh, not very good because, it, again, it takes trading. And there is some, there's a use of gold, right? It can be, it's used in certain things, but jewelry and other things. So I'm a, I'm a, I'm a skeptic about it, I have to say. Um, not an expert by any means, but I come back to where is the intrinsic value other than a higher price from a from a buyer? Um, and uh, smarter people than me have a different view, but uh, that that's that's my view, Greg. And uh, not a and then somebody will say you want to put put one percent in it. I don't in your portfolio. I'm not sure why you do that. I'm not sure what yeah. percent does for you. You know the the things that you've stuck with uh, that are there in book one and book two, and will be there in book three, uh, and they're actually the principles that underlie what our uh, private wealth advisors do with clients. I think those are the things that work uh, again and again and again. Uh, you know the, the thing about about being around. Uh, I had Bruce Flat from Brookfield on uh, a month or two ago. And Bruce has been CEO since 2002, generated incredible uh, stock market returns for, yeah, like 3,000% over the time or something. But one of the things, one of his themes was, uh, you know, we've been around a long time and, and you get to see things. And first of all, there's always something happening from a macro standpoint. He went through all the things, Jack, that you've had in your career all the way back to Greenspan raising rates in 94, suddenly 98, long-term capital. There was a Russia crisis then, September 11th. Uh, TMT bubble, you know, goes on and on. And then the other thing is, um, you know, you see things come and, and they get a lot of traction and you, you might wonder, well, you know, this is a little bit of a surprise and then, you know, change happens and uh, and they go away. So uh, I think that's, th those are really a lot of the principles underlying your books and your philosophy and vanguards. Well, David, one, you know, one of the things I tell people all the time, I say, how old are you? They say, oh, I'm 65. I say, you're a long-term investor. You know, you should live to, 90. And so why do you care what happened today in the market? If you have a well-structured portfolio, if you have an advisor that helps you with that, it's noise. That's the hardest thing for people to understand is, is, is the noise element. And yeah, there's good noise. Crypto goes to 60,000 or whatever it did. And then there's bad noise, but it's, it's all short-term noise. And the reality is nobody's ever, no individual, no, but nearly no individuals ever traded themselves to wealth, right? And so how, how are you going to get there? The risk, the reward you get for taking risk on inherently value creating enterprises is, 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 the, is the winning strategy at the end of the day. And it may be, that's why he's done such a great job at Brookfield, right? Yeah. And um, so it's a, but it's hard. It's hard with daily updates, you know, um, you know, I'm driving in here this morning early and I get what happened in London on NPR before they give you the news at 6 a.m. I mean, it's, you know, interesting, but not relevant, right? <laughs> but if, unless, but you, again, this is one of the reasons, you know, one of the things that surprised people in my, in this second book was 
I basically say at a certain point in time, you need an advisor, which is not what I believed 20 years ago, I have to say. Of course, I was 20 years younger than two. And uh, you need an advisor to help you avoid doing something um, and to set up that portfolio. And that's, again, part of the thing that makes what you guys do gratifying and, and, and important. Well, you know, I, I have to say, I, I want to uh, pause on that because uh, it wasn't what you would have said 20 years ago. And you do come out of having been, you know, the person instrumental in building this, you know, Vanguard, uh, which was much more about uh, dealing directly with the client. And, you know, so for you in 2022 to say you need an advisor, and this is, you know, a lot of what our advisors do. They say, wait a minute, take a deep breath. We thought this through, the market's down. But we knew it was going to go down at some point. We have a good plan. Maybe we tweak it and adjust it. But I mean, that is the great part of the advice and counsel that we we provide. I uh, we at a Notre Dame event the other day, and man starts talking to me. And he seemed to be quite knowledgeable about certain things, that, like my career, which was uncomfortable. And I said, "So what do you do?" He says, "I'm a financial advisor." And I said, "Tell me how you do that." He said, I have a singular goal. I have a singular description of what I do. He says, I'm, a, I'm in the behavior modification business. It's a great description. He's a standalone RIA and people come to him and you think about how many millionaires get uh, graduate from their company 401k plan every day, right? And they go from being a saver to an investor. And he, he views his job over the last 35 years as um, helping people, in some ways, not do the wrong thing, yeah. which is, you know, close to doing the right thing, but not doing the wrong thing. He views as far more important than getting any asset allocation right or the selection of an underlying asset. It, it was a profound, actually, statement. Uh, I was impressed that, uh, and we ended up talking about it for a long time, how he does it, and uh, he just couldn't imagine a more gratifying career. It's a great, I'm going to borrow that one. It's a great uh, description. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, if you have world-class advisors, as we do, who care that much about the client, and they're in the, you know, behavior modification where necessary business, it's a, it's a huge value added. Let me just shift here. We've got some questions, and, and these are on topics that I want to make sure we touch. So Jackie Claver, uh, who, as you know, has been instrumental in that investment platform we built, yep. uh, asked the following. As a result of the innovative structures introduced by Vanguard and its peers, passive investing now comprises over 40% of U.S. fund assets and is expected to overtake active investing in the U.S. by 2026. How do you think that passive investing has changed the market landscape and opportunity set for active stock pickers? Uh, more broadly, how can passive and active strategies complement one another in portfolios? I think Jackie's talking there about active stock pickers, mostly long only, although we could do long short too. But yep. anyway. Um, so I'm going to correct her on the passive. I, it's indexed products. <laughs> uh, because as you read a lot about corporate governance and stuff, uh, you know, BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street are not passive. They, they are indexed. So sorry, Jackie, that's a that's a pet peeve of mine. Um, listen, I, I think it's a great thing, personally. I think I think it's a the share that indexed assets takes up is good for investors outcomes because it is a zero sum game. And if you can take a core of your portfolio and index it to the market, that's a winning strategy for everybody. And people worry that there's not going to be enough float, not be enough liquidity, not be enough lots of stuff. That, that's just, we're so far from that. It would have to be 95% before that was an issue. 
So I, I don't worry about the market implications of that. What I what I do think is the opportunity, and I, I said this earlier, um, it's going to be very hard to run a 98 beta, 99 R squared, actively managed investment product at 100 basis points. It just is. It's harder today. And so I, what my own sense is you're going to have large pools of, of indexed assets very much complemented with uh, strategies that are long only concentrated um, at high risk, high reward. And that mix, I happen to think that's the optimal mix. You can have an entirely indexed portfolio and that's fine. Um, my own view is you, you ought to have a core of index no matter who, and then you ought to find the best partners you can find to be the alpha generator for you on that in your aggregate portfolio. You see it already. You, you, you see an increasing uh, focus on these uh, specialized concentrated managers. And I think that's a trend that's just going to continue and continue. And it, that in turn, and you're going to pay up for that, by the way. So the combination of your, your total cost of ownership with a higher cost uh, concentrated uh, in investment and an indexed investment is going to result in a, in a very competitive total cost of ownership. And I think it's exactly the way it should go. So, and those investors aren't going to be at all impacted by growing share of indexed in the market channel. That's great, Jack. Uh, another good question here from Peter Willis. Both in your first book and in today's discussion, you've advised to, quote, tune out the noise and be skeptical of fads. Especially in today's media environment with no shortage in options of where to get information, your NPR reference, Jack, what sources have you gravitated towards as reliable, consistent, and unbiased references for research? Peter Lynch, for example, has previously mentioned he used to simply go sit in a shopping mall and watch the crowd flock to certain stores products to see where to begin his investment research. Peter, I'll say this, Peter Willis, who sent this question in, you've set the bar very high asking for um, uh, consistent, reliable, and unbiased references, but let's see if Jack can come up with it. No, so, so listen, um, there, there are, a, a, I, I actually go to firms. I go to firms' websites. Um, I, I, I read what Rockefeller writes. You know, to me, I, I don't want I don't want the middleman. I, I don't want to hear somebody's interpretation of what somebody's thinking. So I encourage people to go to competitors' websites. Um, you know, and I read every letter that comes in from trusted investment partners. That's that's where I get most of my information. Um, because again, I'm not interested in what happened to the Dow in the last week or month or year for that matter. I'm interested in secular trends in uh, in economic uh, forecasts grounded in broad perspectives, not narrow. So, you know, I, I am a I am a skeptic about um, you know, you listen to earnings calls and you never hear actual owners of the company on, a, on an earnings call. It's always somebody who's incented to have activity where, um, and that to me is metaphorical for the way you, you want, you want to go to principals who have, uh, who have skin in the game. And again, I, I find what I read on the rock from Rockefeller Health, like Vanguard has very good stuff, uh, spends a lot of money on it. BlackRock has good stuff. That's where I go. And that's and I find are they unbiased? I don't know, you know. But I, I, I think I've got enough skepticism to know what what I'm hearing, and uh, 
to me, I'm always interested in what an owner thinks more than what an agent thinks. That's the difference. That's excellent. Uh, and that gets me to uh, somebody who does a lot of writing for us and I believe is unbiased. Jimmy Chang has a question here that says, uh, and this is a good one, Jack. Uh, I think the current macro environment is the most challenging in decades. Jimmy's been in it for decades, so that's a statement. Given your long career on Wall Street, can you think of a prior period that is similar to the present time and what was it like going through that period? Um, Jimmy's not as old as I am. I was going to admit, Jimmy, I was going to mention you specifically as, as one of the guys I read because I find it uh, both well-written and thoughtful. But, um, you know, it's interesting now, right? So this is, people call this unprecedented, not Jimmy, other people call it unprecedented. It's not unprecedented, right? Um, so the stock market went down dramatically in 73, 74, just as inflation and stagflation hit. That it's a period of time that if you want to go back and look and say um, what was going on at the time, I would look at 73 to 82. I hope we're not in an eight-year bond stock bear market, but um, just just look at that. It that's a period of time we didn't have the tools or the knowledge we had from an inflation fighting standpoint at those at that point in time, but it was a brutal period of time. Um, you know, the Dow, I forget when the Dow crossed 1,000 the first time. It was like 1971, crossed it again in 82. And our friend, remember our friend, Duncan McFarlane, who used to run Wellington Management Company, uh, we crossed the Dow, we crossed 1,000 in the Dow, but he's whooping up. He, he calls me and says, hey, fun day, huh? And he goes, yeah, because I was your age when it crossed when it crossed 1,000 the last time. <laughs> like, thanks, I appreciate the upper. But you learn from those periods. So that's the period I would look at. You know, most of the people in the fixed income market, they've been in a bear market in bonds. Think about it. And then when you've got both, you know, bonds were in the uh, late 70s, they were known as certificates of confiscation. You come in every day and lose money as rates kept rising. So I would look back there, Jimmy, as, as a place, and um, there's, there's enough people around who were around in those days that it's worth picking their brains a little bit about it. But I would tell you that I'm much more optimistic. We just didn't have, I don't think we had the, uh, the I'll call it intelligence, I don't mean IQ, but intelligence in markets and stuff at the Fed that we have today. And so uh, we're not, we're not gonna, I don't think we're gonna see another period like we saw after uh, when stagflation hit. But they look back, I'm sure, and say, what did we do right and wrong when there were whiffs of inflation in the 70s and how did we get out of it? And we're not going to have to bring Paul, uh, uh, Paul Volcker in, I don't think, to fix it like he did in 81 and 82. You know, Jack, that's a, uh, it's a, you know, that period, I mean, uh, I, I didn't work through it, but uh, uniquely difficult time in our history. Bernanke wrote a letter, I believe, a week or so ago, and he argued against that period occurring now for some of the reasons you just did. He said that th there wasn't the political will to fight inflation in the same way. I mean, the Fed has been slow and late and, and all that's a problem, but they're unequivocal now. They know they need to break the back of the expectations around inflation. And as Jimmy's been writing and, and, and others, obviously the recession risk goes up here because they're willing to take more risks there because they know they got to get this. That didn't exist in the 70s. Uh, so, you know, this is how we avoid repeating it. Well, exactly. And you, you can be a Keynesian or a moderatist, you know, whatever you want, but you go back and look what worked and what didn't. And we just didn't, again, um, you know, um, 
the old quote, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. And um, but any anyone who doesn't and, you know, I'm sure Chairman Powell, I'm sure he's reaching out to Chairman Bernanke and others, right, and saying the, and and you've you've seen the Fed, I think, say, you know, we missed it a few times here. That was not that was not the Greenspan Fed. They didn't say we missed it. Yeah. Uh, Jack, uh, a couple more good questions. Uh, uh, another one from Jackie, but I want to ask it because it's an interesting perspective you bring. As the former chairman of FINRA, can you share any insights about how FINRA was and is focused on maintaining the fairness and integrity of public markets? What were some of the areas of focus during your tenure and where do you think they, they should be focused and will be focused now? So let me admit a tremendous bias. I'm a huge fan of FINRA. It's informed regulation they are, you know, they are good regulators of both distribution and importantly markets, um, but they're informed by engaging with the industry about trends, problems, solutions, and so on. So I come with that bias. And, you know, for me, uh, th they keep their ears grounded. I'll give you an example. High frequency trading came under a lot of pressure because Somebody, Michael Lewis, wrote a book about it. And, you know, so the political class says, oh, my, high frequency trading is bad. High frequency trading is not bad. It closes spreads. It creates liquidity. It does a whole bunch of things. And rather than react and say it's bad, Fender steps back and takes a look and says, well, maybe there's a tweak here or there, but nothing we didn't know, but we're not going to slam the door on. And it's just an example of where they are, they are you know, um, uh, they have a forward mantra, which is investor protection, market integrity. Everything they do, and again, I, I'm not uh, showing for them. It's just I observe them and, and, and I have immense respect for what they do is driven by those two. That's all they focus on. And it's critically important. They are as knowledgeable, they're as technologically sophisticated on market on markets themselves as anyone in the country. So. I, for one, take great confidence that they oversee markets, especially because they can pick up the phone and call somebody who's running an HFT firm or somebody who's doing this and say, tell me what's going on here. And we will respond, right? You'll respond, Greg. And, and so, uh, again, for me, it's not quite uniquely American, but it's pretty close to uniquely American, this mix of you know, private sector, if you will, and public at the SEC, and it's a great combo. But Fender on the front lines is is a huge asset for all of us and our clients and our and the investors. As you know, I, I shared that view when I sat on the board and I and I was at Morgan Stanley, and I share the view today. Uh, you know, I think the phrase "enlightened regulation" is a is a good way of describing it, which is ultimately important for the confidence we need investors and the clients on this call to have in markets. Um, Jack, some more uh, topics uh, as we only have uh, nine minutes and I want to get through them. You often say that growth in a company is good for everyone. Can you please talk about why that is the case in your mind? You know, it's it's um, obviously we, we share the malady of being hyper competitive, right? So um, is it a malady? <laughs> I, I put it in quotes. I put it in quotes. Yes. Um, but you know you want to win. If you're gonna if you're gonna play, you might as well win. And so if you're if you're winning, you're gonna grow. And so that's part. Just start at the macro level. But you know tangibly, it's unbelievably motivational for the teams, it, and it attracts great pe growth. Attracts great people. 
and, and it provides phenomenal career opportunities for people. It provides rewards for people. Hopefully it provides scale, which can be in turn turned into better value for your clients as, as you grow along. Um, and, you know, so there are, you know, I've known people who say they did, they didn't really want to grow as a firm. And I just can't imagine it, but I've never seen and growth for growth sake is not a good thing, by the way, I should caveat that, you know, high quality uh, principled growth is what I'm talking about. Not I'm going to do an acquisition, so I'm twice as big. And I'm really talking about organic growth. You know, to me, organic growth is the ultimate uh, winning formula. If you can, you know, you all attract new advisors to, to Rockefeller and they they join us and, and, and grow. Um, but it's win, win, win. And uh, I don't know the I don't know the counter argument, but uh, I've run into more people and I've than I would ever thought I would have over a long career who we're a little apprehensive about growing. Yeah, we're, we're trying to, as you know, at Rockefeller have everybody on that page that growth is good for everyone, not for growth's sake, but because it creates a dynamic uh, culture. You can attract uh, really talented people. And if your clients give you more money to manage because you're doing a good job for them or recommend another client, which happens to us all the time, say you should talk to this advisor, you should talk to Rockefeller, that's a real statement about the excellence that the organization is bringing forward, and and that and that is that that that's the ultimate that's the ultimate statement in that regard. And again, it benefits everybody. You know, scale is undervalued in some ways. You get more money to spend on technology to be better. You get you know you you get down the reasons that scale, particularly in our business, is important. Scale comes from growth. Jack, another uh, question thing I wanted to ask you, uh, you've been described as being in a perpetual state of dissatisfaction. Uh, and, and in fact, you like it when people say that about you. I, I would as well. I'm waiting for that compliment. Um, so uh, can you talk a little bit about why uh, you, you enjoy hearing that you're in a perpetual state of dissatisfaction? I describe it as the best insult I ever I ever received. Um, <laughs> the difference between the person who who first laid it on me and, and me was she thought it was an insult. I thought it was a compliment. I just think you need you need to be driven. You know, you, you want to figuratively die getting better. As an organization, as an individual, as a parent, as a spouse, just fill in the blank. You know, my last conversation with my father before he passed away was a three page lecture on what needed to be fixed in the Dodd-Frank financial reform bill because it would screw up the industry he'd uh, spent his career in. This is two days before he passed away. And to me, that's that's the pers personification of, you know, a perpetual state of dissatisfaction. I'm 93 years old and I am learning and there's change happening and I don't think it's good change, right? So that that's all it is. And it's edge and it's a lot of things, but it comes, you know, it, it, you, you come back to, be better tomorrow than today and don't look back learn from what you but never be nostalgic that's all you know einstein said um uh, intellectual growth should cease when you leave the world and not until then uh it's the, the, the same notion um i've got one more for you uh that billy fenbridge sent in which i like uh uh i want to hear what you have to say in this billy says i know you believe in the critical importance of building a good corporate culture in your view what are the key ingredients of such a culture 
And do you have advice for building and maintaining good culture in organizations that are both A, growing rapidly, we just talked about that, and B, geographically dispersed? He's obviously talking about us and others. So uh, your thoughts on that? You know, I'd say and the answer to the second one is, you know, technology and this has really helped, I think, do that, but you can never give up the personal aspects of it, right? So for me, I think you have to have the core things that will not change in culture. Rockefeller, it's integrity, it's client focus. It's, these are the things you talked about when you had your first town halls, right? So you, and you can never accept somebody cutting a corner on any of the core cultural tenets, right? It's fearsome competitiveness. It's uh, how, however you define it. So to me, it's establishing what will never change in the culture and then enforcing that is the core element, Billy, of how to, how to make culture work. And then it's talking about it and talking about it and talking about it. And then the last thing I would say is role modeling it. You can't yeah. say A and do B because people are too smart. People are too smart. And the great organizations, at least in my view, are ones that have a great culture and the overlay is a great mission. And the mission and the culture are completely aligned with one another. And the leaders live it, act it, and communicate it consistently. That would be the way I think about it. And the firms, the organizations, the universities that I admire, whoever, families for that matter. Uh, that's the way I think about how you how you make it happen. Well, that's a, a block of sentences that should be uh, uh, put together and, and, and listened to. Um, I'm going to get the last 60 seconds in because I want to see what you say about this. Advice to young people today and, and how has that changed over the course of your career? I'll say two things, the short answer. One, um, it's a long game. Don't be in such a hurry. To, uh, and you see kids who major in three things, got to have an internship as a freshman in college. I say slow down. It's a, it's a long game. That's important. The second one that I'm not sure I understood well enough was uh, never lose sight of balance. You define what balance means. Um, it may be a family life and work. It may be this and that. But balance matters. D don't put all your energy into it any single aspect of of your life um and so those two are lessons of an old man i guess uh versus what i might have been saying 20 or 30 years ago greg and uh you know i hope my kids get it and hear it um and again the benchmark is the most gratified people i know in their 60s or 70s or 80s or 90s right and what did they have? And generally, it's uh, it's those two things. You know, what's great about that answer, Jack, is um, we, we just went through the perpetual state of dissatisfaction. And then you tagged on, on alongside that it's a long game and balance. And, and I they're not in conflict with each other. We speak about that all the time at Rockefeller. I think great companies have people who have all of those things that come together. Uh, so uh, really uh, fantastic to have you here. Um, I uh, uh, I want to thank you again for being back on. Uh, really uh, terrific uh, to, to have you come back through two years later. Thank you for all you do for Rockefeller Capital Management. Uh, I, our clients and uh, my colleagues and uh, friends of Rockefeller all know that uh, I always wrap it up with a quotation that uh, hopefully uh, is in sync and symbolizes the uh, the guest speaker that we've had. 
So uh, this one Jack sent me, we trade quotations and lots of things all the time uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I loved it. I sent it to a few uh, of my colleagues, but now everybody gets to hear it. Uh, so Jack, thanks again for being here. And I leave everybody with uh, uh, Friedrich uh, Nietzsche, who said the following, quote, he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how, end quote. And I think uh, Jack Brennan has lived that uh, his whole life. So many thanks again for being here, Jack. Uh, and we look forward to uh, uh, having our clients and colleagues and other friends of Rockefeller back in the, in the near term. Stay well, everybody. Uh, and we'll talk soon.